Listener supported. WNYC Studios. From WNYC Studios, it's Brian Lehrer, a daily politics podcast. It's Thursday, September 8th. So usually we begin this program with something about an important news story of the day, right? Today, though, let me begin with something about a news story from April, a news story that's five months old that we've never mentioned before on this show. It's about a guilty plea in a criminal fraud case by a man named Brian Colfage. I think I said his name right, Brian Colfage. As the Washington Post told the story on April 21st, Brian Colfage, a disabled veteran who headed a $25 million fundraising effort for a U.S.-Mexico border wall with the help of former Trump aide Steve Bannon, has pleaded guilty in connection to defrauding donors for his own gain. It says Colfage, an amputee who lost three limbs serving in Iraq, could serve more than five years in prison. He was accused of using more than $350,000 in donations on personal expenses, such as home renovations and vehicle payments, after telling We Build the Wall campaign contributors that he would not take a cut of the collections or give himself a salary. On Thursday, that Thursday in April, in federal court in Manhattan, the Post reported he admitted to siphoning off money for himself and also pleaded guilty to tax crimes for failing to report that income. So that from the Washington Post, April 21st. I'm guessing that most of you have never heard of Brian Colfage or his conviction until this moment. You may also not have heard about Steve Bannon's indictment in that case. He was arrested and charged back in 2020 for taking more than a million dollars for himself from that money raised from donors supposedly to build that wall. Fittingly, perhaps Bannon was arrested on a 150-foot yacht floating in the Long Island Sound. And not only a yacht, a super yacht, as it's known at that length, 150 feet, a super yacht owned by a billionaire businessman friend of Bannon's, a yacht valued at $28 million, according to multiple press reports at the time. But Bannon never faced trial in that case because President Trump, before he left office, pardoned Bannon. Trump did not pardon disabled Iraq war veteran Brian Colfage for defrauding Trump supporters and pocketing that $350,000 or two other not famous guys who were also charged. He only pardoned Bannon, his former chief strategist, January 6th provocateur and far-right icon, for the charges of stealing those million bucks from people who gave it for building a wall at the border, they thought, not for building an extension on Steve Bannon's house or whatever he might have used it for. Well, this morning, as you may have been hearing, Bannon was arrested by the state of New York and charged for basically the same crime by the Manhattan DA, Alvin Bragg. Trump's pardon only got Bannon off the hook for federal crimes. That's how presidential pardons work. What Bannon allegedly did is also a crime in the jurisdiction of New York, and he has now been formally charged. Still not known is whether Trump will be charged with any of the things he's being investigated for, interfering with the certification of the presidential election in Georgia, 
sedition or whatever charge in connection with January 6th, fraudulent valuation of various properties in New York, or his resistance to returning classified documents to the government after taking them home to Mar-a-Lago after his presidency. That one in the news very much these days, of course. And in that last case, the Washington Post reported Tuesday night that those documents contained materials pertaining to a foreign country's nuclear capabilities. Joining us now to talk about Bannon turning himself into Alvin Bragg, that foreign nuclear government's military secrets hanging around at Mar-a-Lago, and more, is one of the reporters on that Tuesday article. Washington Post correspondent Devlin Barrett, who covers the FBI and the Justice Department and is author of October Surprise, How the FBI Tried to Save Itself and Crashed an Election, which was about the Hillary Clinton classified documents investigation. Devlin, thanks for coming on as your story is in the spotlight. Welcome back to WNYC. Hi, Brian. Thanks for having me. Can we start with that little piece of history of Donald Trump pardoning Steve Bannon for (laughs) allegedly pocketing a million dollars of Trump supporters' donations that they thought was going to building that wall, but not pardoning the disabled Iraq war vet accused in the scheme with Bannon? Did Trump ever say publicly to your knowledge, why he pardoned Bannon or didn't pardon Bannon's partners in that case? I think I think what Trump has said publicly on, on the pardons is that, you know, and, and, and you got to remember Bannon's pardon came as part of a batch of pardons for folks like um, Roger Stone. You know, I, I think Trump takes the view often that people close to him who are charged with crimes um, one should not be charged with crimes, and two, you know, his argument is is that these cases are all some variant of political politically motivated witch hunt by his enemies in the deep state. Uh, that's his rationale and argument for doing these things. Uh, I would say that it it seems, although he is often sort of non maddeningly non specific in how he talks about some of these issues, I, I would say I think. As best I can tell, it's because the pres- he pardons Bannon and not the others because the president, con- former President Trump, considered Bannon one of his guys, uh, and and that did not apply to um, people beyond Bannon in that case. Despite their being uh, so loyal to the idea of building that wall and all of that stuff. So the brand new news here, uh, this is less than an hour old, in the 9 o'clock hour, Steve Bannon surrenders to Manhattan DA. I'm reading from Politico. Longtime Trump ally and, ally and former White House advisor Steve Bannon handed himself over to New York State prosecutors. Bannon, 68, reported to the Manhattan District Attorney's Office a little after 9 a.m. The office confirmed his pending indictment. He faces criminal charges for his role in a group that raised $25 million to build a wall along the border with Mexico, but allegedly pocketed some $1 million in donations. That from Politico just moments ago. So the new charges in that case at the state level in New York, they are for the, exactly the same thing. Is that your understanding? Yes, it's, it's, the, it's the allegedly fraudulent conduct around you know, the, the, the wall building, fundraising, and the remember the allegation is that they basically did not spend this money a lot of this money on any wall building efforts they spent it on themselves. Um, that's the original allegation in the federal case. We have every reason to believe uh, 
our understanding, I should say, is that <clears throat> that will be the, the central allegation uh, in when the state charges are unsealed against Bannon. And that's not double jeopardy, that is, being charged for the same crime um, after you've been acquitted or, in this case, pardoned uh, well, for that's a that very crime? Interesting- yeah, Brian, that's a super interesting question. If if you use to to, to compare it to a, a similar but not identical case, Paul Manafort, the, Trump's former campaign manager, chairman, I should say, his former campaign chairman was uh, put to trial and convicted of fraud, and then Trump pardoned him, and then the Manhattan DA charged Manafort with essentially the same facts as state crimes. Uh, the court eventually ruled that you can't do that. That's double jeopardy. Here you have a slightly different scenario where Bannon was charged, never put to trial, but and because he was pardoned before he could go to trial. So I expect Bannon's lawyers will make some challenge to this to this indictment in saying it's still double jeopardy, even if he didn't go to trial for, on those on those charges. Um, and, um, I, right. Go, sorry, it's ahead. a state because presidential uh, presidential pardons apply to federal charges, but not to state charges. Right, right. Um, so I, I think I think that's an interesting legal question that I, I don't believe is tire- entirely resolved. I don't think we can predict that the future of that right now. Clearly, though, the Manhattan DA's office believes there is enough of a difference between the facts of the Manafort case and the facts of the Bannon case that they think they can go to trial and get a conviction. Huh. Bannon, of course, calls these charges political. I'm not seeing yet if he's out on bail. Do you happen to know if New York's famous recent bail reform law <laughs> applies to allegedly defrauding Trump supporters out of a million dollars? I would say uh, he's likely to get bail, although you never know what prosecutors are going to ask for or what a judge will do ahead of time. Uh, I would say he's likely to get bail, not so much because of the state's bail laws, but because white-collar defendants in particular, uh, particularly ones who have been in the system before and uh, shown up for court, uh, are essentially trusted on on certain bond conditions to keep doing so. You know, the one thing to remember about Bannon, I know the the news comes uh, fast, fast and heavy these days, but one thing to remember Bannon is he was just convicted in federal court two months ago in Washington, D.C. for contempt of Congress. He is a he is an already convicted person, um, and it is an amazing like his legal saga is one of the most amazing uh, criminal courts episodes of the entire Trump era. Would Brian Colfage, the disabled Iraq war vet who pleaded guilty in the scheme, be likely to testify against Bannon? This may be outside of your your reporting assignment, but do you know if cooperation with the government was part of whatever plea arrangement he made? Uh, I don't believe that was part of it, but I can find out. And and, and look, if, even if you have a deal with the feds, that doesn't necessarily translate into testimony for, for state prosecutors. The other thing to keep in mind, though, is that a lot of people decide to cooperate after they've already gone to prison. So one of the things that can happen is people can plead guilty or be convicted, go in and decide that in order to try to shorten their sentence, try to get some break on on their prison term, that they are willing to cooperate. Uh, So those are the things to look for. I think it's the right question to be asking, because certainly 
there is still a potential incentive for those people to uh, cooperate, even in, even in the state case. Um, but it gets very complicated when you talk about cooperation in the state case when you're sentenced in a federal one. Um, uh, there, there's some extra wrinkles to, to that process because of the two different venues. And you cover the FBI and the Justice Department for the Washington Post. You're not a political analyst. But do you have any sense of whether Trump world, MAGA world is likely to rise up in support of Steve Bannon in this case and back him up on this being a political accusation, even though the charge is basically stealing money from them, stealing money from, you know, Trump is and, and, and people connected to Trump in some way are constantly raising money um, off of Trump's politics, off of Trump's troubles. That even applies to January 6th and the classified documents investigation and other things that actually help them fundraise. Um, but since this is alleged abuse of money that those people gave to the organization Steve Bannon was connected with, are they lining up behind them around the country? Do you have any sense of it? I will say this, having again, having covered uh, his past trial, uh, I would say that it appears to me, and I, I'm not only am I not a political analyst, I'm probably a bad one when I try to be, <laughs> but it is it is striking to me. Everybody the degree should admit to that because most people are. But anyway, go ahead. <laughs> it is striking to me the degree to which even when you see these allegations of sort of fraud and manipulation and misuse of what I would I tend to think of as his fan base or Trump's fan base, um, the fans themselves don't view it that way. Uh, most of them, the fans themselves view these things, these cases as often as the president describes them as as sort of political payback, not based on on, you know, meaningful facts or facts they care about, I guess, is how how I think of it mm -hmm. in some ways. And so I don't think you will see, um, I don't think you have seen yet a sort of turning off of the fans away from, from folks like Bannon. In fact, I mean, one of the really remarkable elements of the Bannon trial this summer, and I expect will be a remarkable element of any Bannon trial that happens in New York is, at that trial in July, Steve Bannon came out and talked publicly after court every day and just sort of railed against the machine in the process and, you know, had a very popular podcast that did great numbers while he was on trial uh, for, for these things. So I, I really think in a weird way, the attention and the charges can increase popularity. Devlin Barrett, who covers the Justice Department and the FBI for The Washington Post, is our guest. And let's go on to your story called Materials on Foreign Nations' Nuclear Capabilities Seized at Trump's Mar-a-Lago. This is the big story in that case, the last day and a half or so. And you open that article with the context of how closely guarded some of the seized documents usually are. Would you begin with that context for our listeners? Sure. I, I think I think one of the things I, I, I really want to explain because the, the world of classified information is a strange world and it's and you know while while there's a lot of movies about it, there's a lot of talk about it, it's actually not a very well understood world. And that's by design, obviously. If you if you build a world of secrets, you don't want to talk about how the world of secrets works. But the, the point of this of this context and description was to, to sort of try to highlight to, to the reader. Some of this stuff uh, is cl is classified 
under what's called special access programs. Uh, it's a very bland term, but it means something very important in the government. And what it means is that only very high level people are allowed to uh, let other people know about uh, this information. It's sort of, if you think of top secret as like uh, a big pool of information and only some people are allowed in that pool, special access programs are a very small circle in that pool and a very small number of human beings are allowed into that small circle. And so, for example, some of the information we're told that was taken from uh, Mar-a-Lago was so closely held that only cabinet level secretaries, uh, only some cabinet level secretaries, not all of them by any stretch, the president and a few near cabinet level officials had the authority to tell anyone else about what those programs did. So you're talking about information that was in some cases restricted to just a few dozen people in the entire government. Um, and, and that's one way of understanding the sort of concerns and alarms that this case has generated among the intelligence agents. The article that dropped Tuesday night called Documents Seized at Mar-a-Lago Include Materials on a Foreign Country's Nuclear Capabilities. Can you get any more specific about what country or what about its capabilities? I can't tell you what country because I don't know. I am trying to figure that out. I can tell you that what was described to us was a, a document that describes a foreign government's military defenses. Um, they're sort of they're, they're con both their conventional and nuclear capability uh, of, of, you know, military uh, capability. And so that is obviously of concern. And, and to be clear, this, this followed previous reporting we'd done that one of the things, one of the types of classified information they were looking for in the course of this investigation was any classified documents about nuclear weapons. And what we now know, because it's public, is the subpoena issued in May to, to Trump was for a long list of different types of classified documents. You know, the classification world is very strange and, and there's a lot of different categories, but in that subpoena, it listed uh, all the major categories and one of those categories was the category used for nuclear weapons. Um, and so this follows on that prior reporting. Your sourcing for this revelation is people familiar with the matter. It's that general. And I certainly won't yep. ask you to, to disclose your sources, which you would never do even if I did ask. But can I assume from that language that it was more than one person? You can absolutely assume that's more than one person. And what would the potential implications be of another country's nuclear secrets being stored relatively casually at a resort or a residence like that and where Trump himself doesn't even stay all the time? So I, I think a couple things. One, you know, a lot of government's uh, nuclear capabilities are sort of known but not discussed. And some of them are of great concern and some of them aren't. Um, you know, I, so I think it, it, to your earlier question, it greatly matters what country we're talking about. But I also think the government and, and our government and other governments treat information about nuclear capabilities particularly carefully because there is always a concern that no matter how sort of understood or, you know, generally accepted among foreign leaders is this information, 
you really don't want it out in the public world at all. Um, that's been the case since really the dawn of nuclear weapons, right? Um, and even as there is more familiarity with how the technology works and who might have what, those things are all still very closely guarded secrets, not just by our government, but by other governments. And if so, can, go ahead, yeah. sorry. Go ahead, finish no, all that. I was going to say is it's so it's sensitive, not just to us, but it is likely sensitive information to the other country. And so it's the intel. It's it's a potential intelligence issue. It's a potential diplomacy issue. And it's a potential, you know, uh, national security issue. Intelligence issue and of importance to other countries, uh, I guess, with this implication, even if they don't think nuclear saboteurs are rooting around closets at Mar-a-Lago, it could result in other countries officially or individual spies and other intelligence sources from other countries being hesitant about cooperating with the United States at that level of sensitive information. Right. I think that's one of the generalized concerns that intelligence officials have about the Mar-a-Lago case, that when it comes to highly uh, highly guarded secrets within the government, one of the ways in which these countries all judge each other and decide what to share with each other is whether or not they think stuff is going to leak out or spill out. Um, the Mar-a-Lago case at least raises the possibility that some very sensitive things can spill out. And, and that is always a concern. Uh, and that comes up in other leak cases. Obviously, the Mar-a-Lago case is sort of unique among uh, classified leak investigations, but it is, it, is a common, it is a common issue in such cases. Washington Post correspondent Devlin Barrett, who covers the FBI and the Justice Department and is author of October Surprise, How the FBI Tried to Save Itself and Crashed an Election. Thank you so much. So much information and uh, very cogently presented. We really, really appreciate it. Thanks, Brian. Brian Lehrer, A Daily Politics Podcast, is an excerpt from my live daily radio show, The Brian Lehrer Show, on WNYC Radio, 10 a.m. to noon Eastern Time, if you want to listen live at WNYC.org. Thanks for listening today. Talk to you next time.